right, let's open our Bibles this evening to Revelation chapter 1, verse 4. This is our second week of our introduction to this book. Next week we will get to the first vision of the many that John gets. If you're looking for notes from last week or any week that you might have missed, they're all in the bookstore on file, so you can always drop by there and pick one up. Or if you go to our Watch Live page, there's a notes section that you can click and you can download whatever ones you may have missed. So I think that we have them available to you. I think they'll be helpful in your personal studies. But last week we began with the first three verses. We're only going to look through verses eight tonight as, as John greets the churches to whom he is writing, has a lot to say about why he is writing, what he's going to be saying. And then next week we will come to this first vision of John's of how Jesus looks today. This is the vision of the Lord that you haven't really found anywhere else but here. So last week, as we started our look at this final book of the Bible, we told you that this book of Revelation was God's final word to man. This will sum up everything he has promised, everything he has said, every prophecy that has been spoken. It, it'll leave Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords, and every eye will see him. His glory will be acknowledged by everyone. We told you last week that John the Apostle was the last living apostle, certainly. He was in his 90s. It was near the end of the first century when Domitian, the emperor, turned against the church in a big way. John was arrested in Ephesus, pastoring the church, <clears throat> sent 32 miles off the coast of Ephesus for his faith. And it was there, isolated, that the Lord appeared to John gave him all of the visions and fulfillment that we are studying and will study for, I think, probably for most of the year. Um, we are told in the first three verses last week that God gave this to us so that we might know him better. Many people approach this book wondering if they're going to get any sense out of it at all. I don't think you'll have any problem. It certainly, to me, is not the hardest book to study in the Bible, doctrinally at all. Um, there are some tougher books. Um, but we'll tackle this one. But it is God's plan and it is God's purpose in giving us this book that he could reveal to us who he is. It's no different than the other 65 books of the Bible. The Lord wants you to know him well. That's his purpose. If God didn't want you to know him, you wouldn't know him at all. He's a revealing God. That's what he wants to be known. That's why he came to save. So as such, we need to understand the book and prayerfully and with study and we'll We'll give you the notes and the cross-references so that you can study on your own. Hopefully you will come away from this book if the Lord tarries with a much greater love for the Lord, a much better understanding of his grace and what was coming next. We told you last week of some of the models that people use to teach this book and how they are really way off base, most of them, because they, they reveal a theological position that isn't very biblical. But we see this book as so uh, prophetic, and it is really the only view that can be adopted in line with God's will and his plans to, for the future because he wants to tell us what is coming at the end. The word revelation, as we mentioned last week, means to unveil. That's, that's the whole purpose anyway. God wants to make himself known. He wants you to come to know him. And this revelation is all about Jesus. And it concerns us knowing who he is. And, and as a result, we are told that when this this beginning work of God, you know, begins to roll, I should say, when this takes place in short order, it'll come to the end. 
So we read last week before we finished that the, the angel of the Lord was sent to signify, or we said signify, to John that the, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus was what John was to record. And we took you over to verse 19, which I will re refer you to again, because it is the outline for this book. John is told to write down the things which he has seen, which really stop there at verse 19, and then the things which are, which is the church age, which will cover chapter 2 and 3, and then the things which will take place after those things, and that really begins in chapter 4. So the, the book kind of outlines itself. We ended with verse 3 last week because there's this unique promise of God that, that studying this book and putting your mind to just learn it and, and to read it and then to hear it and then to keep it, everything that's written therein, God promises to bring great blessing upon your life. And so I fully suspect that if you're here every week with your Bibles out and your notepads and, and Lord speak to me, that God's going to honor that word to you. He's going to bless you for making the effort to get to know him better. Well, tonight we're going to, like I said, look at verses 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8, which are still not any vision. It is just John's introduction. Someone said to me last week, you're not moving along too fast. Well, we'll get there. I just don't want you to miss out on anything in between. But here's what John writes. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him. They will look upon him whom they've pierced, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. So the revelation is all about Jesus. And tonight, uh, his greeting to the church before he shares his first vision, and really from verse 9 through verse 20, which we're going to look at next week, is really the vision, like I said, of Jesus um, in all of his glory. It's important that you know those verses from 9 verse 20 because the description that John writes about what he saw is the very same description that Jesus is going to use in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 in the seven letters that he writes to the seven churches. And he uses a portion of the description about himself that fits the message. So, you know, he they kind of line up, right? It's the Lord speaking and he, he wants them to know that he knows exactly what is going on with them. And he identifies himself by, by this portion of the descriptions that John gives to us. So we're going to go over that next week. Notice that, that we read the word John in verse 4 and you want to say, well, John who? But, but you should know that at least from a historical standpoint, John, just his first name without distinction, is, is real typical John. He really does kind of stand away from any kind of glory or honor. And, and the fact that he is the author here um, and just is able to use his name John would tell you that he's one of the more famous guys in the church in Asia Minor in the first century. He, he was the last surviving apostle. Everyone would have just known him as John. It could have called him Old John or... I don't know, but John was, was good enough. They knew him. It, the letter is sent, notice verse uh, 4, to the seven churches 
which are in Asia. These seven churches are addressed by name in verse 11. So if you want to know who are these seven churches, you just read ahead to verse 11 and you'll find their name there. And Jesus writes to them a personal letter that comprises chapter 2 and 3 to those same seven churches. Now the question obviously becomes, why just these seven? There were certainly many more churches in Asia Minor at the end of the first century than these. Paul had established in Asia Minor several churches himself. Uh, the Corinthian church didn't show up here. The Galatian church isn't mentioned. The Philippian church doesn't make an appearance. Or the Colossian church. Even though when he wrote to the Colossian church, he did mention the nearby Laodicean church, which is mentioned in chapter 4 of Colossians. The use of numbers to symbolize more than what is just a count is often found in the scriptures, <clears throat> none more so than in this book. I mentioned to you last week that we don't guess at what things mean. We let the scriptures tell us uh, themselves, and if we can't find an answer in the Bible, we just leave it alone. I would rather say, I don't know, than here's what I think, because that's worth about nothing to you, what I think. The, the danger, obviously, is properly applying, applying numerology, and, and the folks that use numerology a lot tend to use them very randomly, sometimes teaching very fanciful kind of ideas, or they limit them simply to account and won't allow them to be symbolic at all. But the key, I think, in, in letting the Bible define your symbolism is, is one of the helpful tools that you're going to find in studying this book. So whether it's numerology or whether it's symbols, whether it's typology, just determining whether God intends for it to be symbolic or typical is oftentimes established by how it's used in a repetitive way throughout the scriptures. What, what does God say over and over again in using them? And is it used more often than not symbolically or, or, or to convey something beyond just the number or just the name? I'll give you a, a couple of examples. They're in your notes as well. <clears throat> the number two, when it is used symbolically in the scriptures, oftentimes speaks about witness. You can, for example, go to chapter 11 of this book and you will we will run into two witnesses that God will use to, to bear witness to the world as he is bringing his judgment. There are two lampstands and two olive trees found there in chapter 11 as well. The law often says that the, the truth should be established by two witnesses. Um, when there are no witnesses available, the Lord calls on heaven and earth to be a witness. But again, there are those two that are men mentioned um, Moses in chapter 31 calls for two again, the heavens and the earth, to be witnesses against the people if they will not respond to the word of God. In the New Testament, it is the law and the prophets that are witnesses against those who are rejecting the Lord. And so it is used constantly in that way. So you would be comfortable to say, in the Bible, very often, the, the number two, when it is used in those contexts, speak often of being a witness or bearing witness. Is that always true? No, sometimes it just said there's two people. All right, that's probably it. Just stop at two. But when it is used beyond that, you can have some credibility and some footing by just finding the scriptures yourself. The number three in the scripture speaks of life, resurrection, <clears throat> six days of creation, and each day God pronounced it is a was good, <laughs> except for day two. So 
he mentions it twice on day three in Genesis chapter one, the day of double blessing, so to speak. It's very unusual. It stands out. The third day was also when life first appeared in, in creation. God said twice, this is good. Jesus rose on the third day, as will the two witnesses in Revelation 11. They will rise on the third day. And so those are the kind of things you want to look for if you're going to be comfortable letting a word or a number substantiate something other than just a numerical value. The number four usually represents the world. There are four angels that are holding back the four winds from the four corners of the earth. The number five usually speaks about the provision of God's grace, the, the waters on the earth five months before they began to recede. Benjamin, you might remember, got five times um, the serving from his brethren and, and so on. And, and so you can begin to just, when the Lord uses them consciously and, and repetitively, to, to draw some conclusions. The number eight, uh, for example, is the number of new beginnings. The number 40 is usually the number of judgment. And then we get this number seven. And it's used a lot. In fact, the word, the number seven in the scriptures is almost always used for completeness or entirety or totality, if you will. Uh, there's five, seven days in a week, seven days of creation, although on the seventh the Lord rested. Seven primary colors in the rainbow, seven notes on a scale that all signify a completeness. So we get to these seven churches, and all of these churches, all seven of them, existed in the first century in a pretty small area. And yet we conclude, because of the number and, and the messages, that the, that the number seven churches re, re, refers to, to us, this is all that the Lord wants to say to the church. You're the church. You're, I'm the church. This is what God's word to the church is during the church age. Nothing needs to be added to it. This is how he sees the church. Some of them were doing well. Some of them not so well. Some of them were in different generations doing well. Others, you know, <laughs> ceased to exist. But, but these seven letters covered all that God wants to say. There is a complete message from the Lord to the church, to us to a church in every generation. Churches differ from country to country, denomination to denomination. Some depart from the faith. Others have compromised the faith. Some churches are absolutely dead, though they have a, a name that still lives. Others are remaining close to God's word. Some are known for their architecture, not their scripture. Some are known for their choirs, not the word of God. Some are just known for their faith. But God's word to all of them is found in these seven addresses that completely cover what God wants to say. And that's important because the Lord could have wrote 40 more chapters and we'd had to read them all. But this is able to take and apply. It's a number of completeness. Um, it, it is thought by many, and I totally agree, and I'll try to show you as we go, that these seven churches, in order as they are uh, presented to us, also provide for us a broad panorama of church history, starting with the first century church, the Ephesus church, going all the way to the end, to the Laodicean church. And that you can, can literally look through history at, at, at periods, blocks of time, 
where the church is, is represented by that second letter or by that third letter. doesn't mean that the letters don't apply to all of us in every generation, but in a prophetic sense, you, you almost see the Lord painting this huge panorama of this is how the church history is going to travel so that the later seed in church is the, the condition of the church, if you will, when the Lord returns for his people. Um, and, and we'll try to show you that as we go through. But, but like I said, all of these churches existed at one time, and it is the primary application of the, of the letters we're going to read from, the, from Jesus have to be applied individually because churches are people and they're God's people. We, we're going to see many sevens in this book. Some of them are literal. Many of them are not. And I think we can show you when they're symbolic in application. Uh, to point them out, there are seven spirits. We just read that. We're going to read it in verse 20. Seven stars, seven golden candlesticks, seven churches, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven judgments, in, in John's gospel, I think we mentioned to you, John builds his whole case for believing in Christ out of, around the seven I am quotations of Jesus. Ero ime. Learn that from me. From your wife, I think, taught me how to say that correctly. Gerard's wife can speak Greek. I messed it up and she corrected. Ero ime. <laughs> seven declaration, I am. And it, it is the same word that the Lord used when he met with Moses at the burning bush. Who shall I say sent me? And he'll say, tell them I am who I am sent you. God's declaration of who he is. So uh, be careful when you press numbers to make them symbolic when they're not supposed to be. But if you're going to see them that way, be sure you have a biblical kind of uh, foundation for to be able to make that assumption because God has done that time and time again. And you know, that's where I think careful study comes through. So it, it, is, it is John's writing to the seven churches, the, 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 the complete message to the church from Jesus. Grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come. And from the seven, there's that number again, spirits who are before his throne. It, it, it's interesting to me that the book of judgment and final upheaval begins with a word of blessing from God to his servants. Grace to you can certainly not be understood apart from a relationship with God through his son. But since this is the unveiling of his glory, you ought to come away from this book seeing clearly the grace of God or understanding God's grace. And I think there's something to be said for being able to embrace what that means to you. Because, you know, the, the word itself, grace, means, you know, um, unmerited favor, but to the world, grace usually, it either means someone that can stand on their toes without falling over, or, or something that you say real quickly before you eat. But that's not biblical grace. Biblical grace is God's blessings given to men, uh, totally undeserved, that is brought to you or presented to you as a result of God's great love for you. There really is nothing in you that would promote his grace or even his attention. He didn't say, oh, these are lovely people. I think I'll embrace them. No, we were sinners and enemies of God. But God, in his grace, decided to reach out to us. So John begins in, in this address from the Lord, this revelation from, from God about his son, by wishing grace to them. For God to love us, 
must be grace. Like I said, nothing can be found in you or I except rebellious kind of sinners with no inherent behavior that would warrant his love. But by his grace, he loves me. And he desires to use us to, or, or to, desires for us to be drawn back to him by his son. If you've never read Pastor Chuck Smith's book, Grace Changes Everything, I would encourage you to find it and read it. it. It'll change the way you look at life. I think it's one of the best books on grace that I have ever written. It, it is hard for us to receive grace gracefully. And the reason is we somehow have this, this concept in our mind that, that goodness and blessing ought to be earned. We learn it as kids. You get good grades in school. You, you, know, you clean your room. You get an allowance. Everything's a reward system. Until you get to the Lord. And then if you realize what you owe, you don't want a reward system at all. You don't want God to give you what you deserve. In fact, I'll bet none of you will stand before the Lord tonight and say, Lord, just give me what I deserve. You don't want that. God will give you what you don't deserve. What you haven't earned. And it is an amazing concept that is harder to grasp than to then, you know, to, to mentally, I think, grab a hold of. Judgment is far easier because most of us, if we're honest, feel like we deserve it anyway. So judgment's okay. I deserve it. <laughs> I deserve more than that. Grace is hard. It's the other side of the coin, right? Uh, my Grace is harder to fathom because it's not expected. I, I don't expect God to give us that much, but yet he loves me. And if you know that to be so... It'll liberate your walk. It'll change the way you go about. Because there's a lot of Christians to this day that, that relate to God based on a merit system. And so their spiritual lives are on or off depending how good they've been. If they've been prayerful and in church and, and not sinning too much, oh, I expect God to bless me. I've been faithful. Even tithe more than normal. Come on, Lord, pour it out on me, a blessing. And if I've been a real idiot like we are usually, we don't expect anything from God. Yeah, he probably saw that thing the other day. I, I'm sorry, but I, okay, no, no, no dessert for me this week. And, and we relate to the Lord like that, which is, you know, it's, it's very limiting. We expect blessings when we've done well. We expect little when we've done poorly. And my prayers and my hopes kind of depend upon my recent performance. It's almost like God is Santa Claus, checking his list twice, but grace says just the opposite. God knows you completely and loves you anyway. Anyway. If we knew you well, we might not. I suspect you feel like that about you. But God loves us in knowing all about us, which is just amazing. He knows you at your worst and loves you all the same. My weak works I can surrender to the Lord because I know that he loves me no matter what, which means if I understand grace, it brings out the best in me. I want to do well, not because he owes me something, but because I feel like I owe him everything. And grace causes me to behave like that. I, it's not a barter system anymore. Everything I get, God has given me freely. It's not about merit to me any longer. It's about his grace. And so as an expression of his love, he gives me grace. As an expression of my love, I come to serve him, not in a hope for gain, but just as a response to his goodness towards me. I, I used to believe that salvation was work based on works. 
You know, you don't smoke, you don't chew, you don't go with those that do, that kind of thing. But it's all about his grace. Jesus died for my sins, and though I don't deserve that, by believing in him, I'm given life. So John's wish for the church, God's wish for the church, is that you learn to live with God's grace and show that grace to one another. God's grace. And notice that always in these blessings that start at the beginning of most letters, the, the word peace will always follow because peace with God is a gift of his grace. You've been saved. You and God are not at war anymore, That which had separated you from God. Your sin has been paid for and done away with. The, the door is open. You can come boldly into his throne room with your prayers. You're welcome there. You're going to be welcomed when you get there. It is all about the peace with God that Jesus has bought. And then when you get to know the Lord and you begin to, to walk in that peace with God, then the Bible says you have the peace of God. You begin to have the same outlook that the Lord has. Oh, he can handle this. I don't need to worry about this. He, he's far more able than I'm giving him credit for. So here in verse 4 and in verse 5, this grace and peace is offered to us from the Father, from the Holy Spirit, and finally from the Son, Jesus Christ, because there's one God, three persons. Notice grace and peace from him who is and was and is to come. Those are three tenses of the word to be, and at least from a biblical standpoint and from a Greek standpoint, there is no greater way to communicate the eternal existence of God. He always was, he always, he always is, or he is, and he always will be. That'll blow you away. That'll just get you to go, okay, I don't get it, but that's phenomenal. I've tried to figure out always was. Have you ever tried to think that through? It'll just give you a headache. I believe it because God says so, but I don't get it. I, the vanishing point is the word for eternity, right? For eternal or everlasting. So when the Lord spoke to Moses to free those in Egypt, he gave him the word Jehovah. And the word Jehovah is really God becoming what we need him to become. I am who I am, he said. So God is eternal. He's beyond our, our comprehension. This was and is and will be description used four times in this book just to try to describe to us who God is. Remember, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. God wants you to know him for who he is. God had no beginning. God has no end. It'll just blow your mind. And the Father is God, the Spirit is God, Jesus Christ is God, and so they, you know, it is beyond me. I, I love the fact that I don't get it, because if you served a God that you understood perfectly, not much of a God. But he's far beyond my understanding. And I stand in awe of that. I don't get it, I don't get it. I, I tried laying in bed thinking about always, oh, I don't get it. And even the descriptions people have used to try to explain to me just fall way short. So grace and peace from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Remember we just said the, the number seven is the number for completeness when it is used that way. Here are the references to the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. You will find him described in the same manner in chapter 3, in chapter 4, and in chapter 5 as well. We will later see the, the complete judgment of God in the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bulls, the seven plagues. If you go to the Old Testament, to the, the tabernacle, and, and, and when Noah is told to build it, he is told that this would be a 
type of heaven. It would be a, a living picture, an earthly picture of, of what heaven was like, a blueprint, if you will. When you entered the holy place on your left, there would be a candlestick with seven pots filled with oil, symbolic of the light that the Holy Spirit brought into a very dark place. In, in chapter 4 of this book, verse 5, we will read about the seven uh, uh, lamps of fire as being the seven spirits of God. If you go to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, you will read about the Spirit of the Lord is upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, counsel and power and might and all. The, there'll be the seven explanations, if you will, of the work of God's Spirit, attributes that he is, is given, if you will. So we will read of the seven lampstands in a minute, which are uh, the seven churches, and they will be represented by seven stars, which are the achalos. Achalos is a word for messenger, sometimes translated angel, but it is a writing to the spiritual leaders of these seven churches, which is to whom these letters that we get in chapter 2 are addressed. So he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And like I said, these seven churches all have that reference of the God's Spirit. Verse 5 says, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the rulers over the kings of the earth, and to him, to Jesus who loved us, and who washed us from our sins in his own blood. Jesus is last, listed last here, the Father, the Spirit, and then the Son, uh, because Jesus is the one who's in focus here. And notice he has given three attributes in verse 5 that John wants us to think about that, that describe his, his role, both as a prophet and as a priest and as a king. As a prophet, he was a faithful witness. As the priest, he was the firstborn from the dead. As the, the king, he was the ruler, the archon over the kings of the earth. He was the king over the kings of the earth. So look, look in verse 5 there, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Jesus came as a prophet. Into the world of darkness, Jesus came to reveal to you and I the Father and his love. He was a faithful witness, which means he showed you faithfully the heart of God. How faithful was Jesus? In everything he said, in everything he did, in, in the manner in which he did them, the way that he responded, the way that he reacted, he is a perfect portrait of the Father. Hebrews in chapter 1, verse 3, we will read, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And so he purified us from our sins, then he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. But, but Paul describing him in, in Hebrews 1 said he's the exact presentation or manifestation of the will into the heart of God. If you ever want to know what God's like, hang around with Jesus. If you want to know how God's heart is, go read the Gospels and watch how Jesus reacts and what he says and, and what he might say in, in those situations. John will record Jesus saying in chapter 1, No man has seen God at any time. But God, the only and true who is of the Father's side, has made him known. He said to Philip in John chapter 14, Philip, have you been this long with us? And yet you say, show me the Father? 
Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He was a faithful witness. When Pilate said to Jesus at his trial, are you a king then? Jesus said, I am a king. For this reason I was born to come into the world to testify to the truth, and everyone on this side of the truth would listen to me. He was a faithful, a faithful witness. So much so that when he was ready to die in, the, in that prayer in John 17 down at the Kidron Brook, Jesus in verse, I think, uh, 4 of chapter 17 said, Father, I have brought you glory on the earth, and I've completed the work that you've sent me to do, which was what? To reveal the heart, the nature, the method of salvation and the love of God to man. So this letter comes from Jesus, who is the faithful witness, the one that we serve. Look, today, you and I are called to be followers of Jesus and faithful witnesses for him. In, in Luke 24, I think it's verse 48, at that meeting on Easter evening, Jesus said to the disciples, you are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you out. In, in Acts chapter 1, you're going to be witnesses for me, starting here in Judea, in Jerusalem, then Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. You're going to be my faithful witnesses. Look, the world should see Jesus in us. That's who he would want us to be. I know it's presumptuous and it's an admirable goal to be able to say with Paul, follow me as I follow Christ. Or to be able to say, if you've seen me, <laughs> you've seen Jesus. Or probably more exactly, if you've seen me, you wish you'd seen Jesus. But Jesus was a faithful witness. The word witness is the word for martyr, but it is usually not used in terms of, of someone physically dying. It is used in terms of of being the person who gets, steps out of the way and isn't an influence, he represents somebody else. So uh, there's going to be great profit in us studying the, the life and the words and the, and the daily walk with Jesus. He never got rattled. He was good at praying. He was always up praying. He never seemed to worry or panic. He was always about walking in God's love and reaching out. He's phenomenal. <laughs> when the disciples tried to stop moms from bringing their kid to Jesus because they thought, well, you're bugging the Lord. He rebuked the apostles and said, no, 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 of such is the kingdom of heaven. When Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem because he knew what was coming because they had written him off, that's God's heartbreaking. He wanted to save. He knew the destruction that would follow those who had set him aside. And so today I'm sure God's heart breaks over those who walk away. So that's us. We're supposed to be those examples, right? In fact, Paul said to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that, that we are now reconciled to the Lord who has given to us a ministry, a service, a calling of reconciliation to go out and to, in the name of the Lord, reconcile the world to him through Christ, inviting people to come to the Lord through his Son. We're those faithful witnesses. And I'll tell you what, the world needs to hear that from us today that God will give life to those who turn to him. I want to have the heart of God when I see the lost. I want to love as he loves. But this book is going to repeat um, time and again these words, Jesus was faithful. Chapter 3, verse 14, in one of the letters you will read, he who is faithful and true has sent to you these things. So he is, here's grace and peace from Jesus the faithful witness, he's the prophet. Second of all, he was the firstborn 
from the dead. The word prototokos is a Greek word that means prototype. Um, in line with, uh, it, it is literally the first of many. It is a Greek word that speaks about preeminence, not in terms of number. He wasn't the firstborn, but in terms of, of importance or priority. He's the, the preeminent one, right? Which is what this word prototokos means. In other words, without Jesus rising from the dead, you're not going to rise from the dead because his resurrection is the important one. Without him, none of us rise. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 15 or read um, Colossians chapter 1. He's the head of the body. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. That's what Paul said to the Colossians. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he said, let all of the angels worship him. But it's the same word. He's preeminent. He, he's the first one, by the way, to get a glorified body. He's the Lord. Firstborn, he was the priest, right? The one that interceded for us. And notice he's the ruler over the kings of the earth. This is true now in the sense of God being in charge of the affairs of men. You might remember reading in the book of Daniel as Nebuchadnezzar uh, had to learn the hard way that the Lord rules in the kingdom of men. It took him a long time to come to the right conclusion about God. One day soon, Jesus will come back physically and bodily to rule and reign upon the earth. Uh, Paul said in Hebrews chapter 2, you don't yet see everything under his feet, but there's coming a time when you'll see that. It'll, it, this is the end, right? This is the revelation. This is a time when the Lord will show himself. In, in Revelation 11, it says, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. And then will all of those verses which speak of his rule be fulfilled. Everything you read in the Old Testament prophets about the Lord coming to rule and to reign that, that you don't see as yet. There's, there's a verse in, in uh, Zechariah chapter 14, verse 9, that says the Lord will be king over the whole earth, on that day, there will be one Lord, and his name will be the only name. Well, that's not true today, but it will be. He's coming to rule and to reign and to be the Lord. We read in Psalm, I think, 72, the words, all the kings will bow down and all of the nations will serve him. Isaiah wrote in chapter 9 about the, the child that was born, the son that was given, that the government would be upon his shoulders that he would reign of, of his kingdom, there would be no end. That's coming. So grace to you and peace from, from that Jesus who faithfully showed us who God was, who was the, the one who was preeminent in his death and resurrection, the one who was coming to reign over the earth. And here's the final description of him in this verse. He is the one who loves us, and he washed us from our sins in his own blood. This grace of love was entirely uncaused by us. He just loved us. We hadn't loved him yet. He just loved us. We like sheep went astray, everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. By the way, this word loved here is in, in Greek in the present participle, which literally means he is loving you right now. It literally means he loves you now. Not he loved you some time back, he loves you now. It is a, an, an act of the, of the past that has future implications. So if you ever you know, have the devil come tell you that the Lord doesn't love you today, 
You just go back and help him to redefine this word. Hey, devil, come here. De let's see what this word love is in the present part. Well, he loves me now. He loves me now. And not only does he love me now, he loves me to, to a great degree. God so loved he were, the world, it tells us. Not just his love was such a, to such a degree that he was willing to give his life. He, he loved me as his child. Many, I think, say they are in love, and, and we use that word a lot. In, in English isn't too good with language. You know, we love our wife and we love hot dogs. You know, they're the same. It's the same word. It can't be the same word, but it is. Um, we, we'll see kids get married and, oh, we just love each other. And they live in la-la land for about two or three months, and then Mr. and Mrs. Perfect turn out not to be perfect at all. Yet, yet God's love doesn't deviate. God's love doesn't change. God's love is, condition, is consistent. God's love for you is unconditional. It was Shakespeare who said, quite rightly, love is not love. It alters when it alteration finds. God doesn't change. The one who loved us, he loved us so much, so deeply, so, so eternally, that he, he made the decision to come and shed his blood so that we could have our sins washed away. The word washed is, here we go, Greek again, aorist tense. The aorist tense in the Greek, we don't really have it in English, means that there was something that happened in the past that continues to affect the future. So what this really, and the word loved is in the present. So, so what you have is the present, uh, God loves me in the past and in the future. He will continue to wash me from my sins. I'm covered coming and going. That's really what the word says. So glory to God for his love, and God gives us a deliverance. When Adam and Eve were created, they were given lots of liberty, at least if you read through the Genesis account. They really were only restricted from one tree with a pretty severe penalty. To eat thereof, the day you eat, you die. You can have anything else. Do anything you want. Just stay away from this. And where did they go? Right there. You know, the <laughs> we always have that drive, don't we? Um, death penalty attached to disobedience. When they sinned and it was found out, God provided the skins of animals to cover their nakedness. It is the first hint of bloodshed for sacrifice for, for the covering of sin. It ultimately led to Jesus being the Lamb of God, um, which, by the way, his title, Lamb of God, is found 28 different times just in this book. It, it is... It is the reference again to being saved by his blood. Come, let us reason together. Though your sins are scarlet, they can be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they can be like wool. How effective is Jesus' blood on your sins? John will write in 1 John, he wrote it about the same time as this book. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from A-L-L, -L, all unrighteousness. Can he forgive me for everything? Yeah, that's what the word all means. Sometimes we just need to be able to read all unrighteousness. I can be made free from the power, from the penalty, even the eternal consequences of sin by the blood of the Lamb. Verse 6, and he has made us, and, and literally this word reads in Greek, the verse, he has made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The priest in the Old Testament had two jobs. His one job was to 
Go before the Lord and represent the people. Intercede for them, pray for them, ask God for their mercy for them, direction. And then he was to turn away from the Lord and represent God to the people. So in the Old Testament, when the priest would go before the Lord, he would wear a breastplate. It had 12 stones in it that represented the 12 tribes of Israel. It hung around his neck and the breastplate covered his heart. And he had to go before the Lord to, like I said, seek God and the love of God for his people. But then he had to turn around and he had to represent the Lord as a go-between. So he would go to the people and, and demand of them, listen to the Lord, follow his ways. You know, don't, don't do this, do that. So he would go out and he would come in. He would, would do that as well. So today we are to go out and represent the Lord, share his love, and then we're to go before the Lord and lift up the people. God, speak to them. God, help them. God, God, help us. To him be the glory and the honor and dominion. This is exactly what this book is about, the honor that the Lord is going to receive. Well, then John begin, or ends this, this, this greeting by saying in verse 7, Behold, he is coming. The main thrust of this book is Jesus is coming. He's coming to rule. He's coming to reign, to establish his, his throne forever. And, and, and how he proceeds and, and what it accompanies his coming and follows after is the, is the subject of these prophetic visions of John. Now, I think that God's desire for the church has always to have been living in anticipation of his coming. You might remember John the Baptist was arrested while Jesus was still here, and he fully expected the Lord to come and deliver him. In fact, he sent some disciples to him with a question, are you the one that we should be waiting for, Matthew 11, or is there somebody else? An enigma <laughs> that the Jews had to kind of overcome because they, the one that they were waiting for, they never saw as having to suffer and die. They saw him as ruling and reigning. And so they missed his first coming. Notice we read here, when, behold, he is coming with the clouds. We mentioned to you a couple of weeks ago that, that at the rapture, Jesus will catch away all of the saints from the earth in the twinkling of an eye into the clouds. He won't come to the earth. He'll stay in the clouds, right? It is, we meet him in the air, caught up with him in the air, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 1 Corinthians 15 as well. This uh, is speaking of this, this surprise, this this coming without warning is described as a thief in the night, not for the saints, but for the world. It's, it's going to be a shock. At the rapture, he will not be seen by everyone. He will not return to the earth. He won't yet come to rule, but he'll take you to be where he is. And the dead in Christ will rise and our new bodies will be given to us. And then we will one day return. However, when the Lord returns a second time to rule and reign, the, the, the scriptures also say he'll come in the clouds. But it speaks about a, a, in the sense of being seen by everyone, and he will end up upon the earth. So we read in, in Daniel, for example, in chapter 7, Daniel wrote, in, in my visions of the night, I looked, and behold, there was one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. And he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence, and to him was given authority and, and uh, glory and, and sovereign power over all men and nations and and men of every language, they worshipped him. His dominion would be an everlasting dominion that won't pass away. His kingdom will be one that will never be destroyed. Jesus, in describing to the Pharisees of the last days, said in chapter 24 of Matthew, 
immediately after the, the stress of those days, after the uh, tribulation, the, the sun will be dark and the moon won't give forth its light. The stars will fall from the sky. Heavenly bodies will be shaken. And at that time, the sign of the Son of Man will come in the sky with all of the nations of the earth will mourn and they'll see the Son of Man coming with the clouds and with power and with great glory. Uh, Greg Laurie used to say, and with great glory. And I said, no, great glory is what it says. But... If he tells you that, don't believe him. That's just not going to be. Well, he may get to come, but that would be, I think, pretty sure that's not the way the original reads. Every eye shall see him. Now, when the Lord took him, uh, ascended, the angel says, the way you saw him leave, he'll come again. Applies to both the rapture and certainly the second coming. But at the second coming, every eye will see him whom they've pierced. We read here, all of the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. In the middle of the verse, we move, if you will, seven years forward from the rapture to the second coming and to the end of the tribulation. Every eye will see him. It is prophetic, by the way, of the nation of Israel who has yet to acknowledge their Lord because they expect one to rule, and he's coming to do that. He didn't come the first time to do that, and they missed him. Zechariah wrote in chapter 12 and in chapter 13 about they will look upon him whom they've pierced and will cry as one would cry for an only child. Jack, I think Zechariah 13 says, one, one person will say to another, where are these wounds that are in his body? And he says, those are the wounds I received in the house of my friends. So it'll be quite a revelation day for the nation when the Lord returns. But it is applicable, obviously, all men. Um, there are cults today that have said to you and I over the last hundred years, oh, the Lord has come in secret. Um, that's not in my Bible. When he comes, every eye will see him. There's no secret coming of the Lord. But notice that the, the, the coming of the Lord will, will bring a lot of mourning to the hearts of the people. But I'll tell you what, according to the Bible, and I think I'll be able to show you that by the time we get there, when the Lord returns, literally all of Israel that survives will be saved. Not some, but all. All will go, oh, he's the one. <laughs> he's the one. And, and, and the nation is going to turn to him in mass and believe in him. So the second coming of the Lord at the end of the great tribulation will open the eyes of every man, verse uh, or chapter 19, I should say. Uh, for those who have survived, um, there's a verse in Isaiah chapter 25, verse 9, that says, that they will say in that day, behold, this is our God. We've waited for him. He will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. We are glad and rejoice in our salvation. That's the proclamation of the people that see the Lord's return. So I think it's going to be quite a day. I don't know. Every eye shall see him. We have satellite TV now. It should be easy. Now, we've been raptured, like I said, seven years previously. Millions of us will return with him, as we're told in Jude or in Colossians. And we'll get the specifics of that when we get a little further in. So John speaks in preview of the coming of the Lord visibly, certainly, and victoriously. Three verses of introduction, four or five verses of greeting, and then this word in verse 8, the, the, the words of Jesus himself, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, who is and was and who is to come, the Almighty. And the words that are used to describe the Father in verse 4 are now used exactly to describe the Son 
in verse 8. The I am trademark, right? Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Before Abraham was, I am. At the, request, at the rest in the garden, look to Jesus. He said, uh, we're looking for Jesus. And he said, I am. He didn't say, here I am. He just said, I am. And they all fell down backwards. You remember that. God identified himself to Moses with the same title. The, the words Alpha and Omega, I'm sure you know, are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. It just means the beginning and the end. Jesus, who, who, by whom the world was created, will make an end of all things as well. He's the first. He's the last. By the way, that's exactly the way the Father is referred to in Revelation chapter 6. So, ten times in the entire Bible and nine of them here in the book of Revelation, Jesus uses the title Almighty. It's a great word, really, because it literally means to rule over everything. Omnipotent one, that would be the way you could describe this word. Jesus has no limits to his power. He is God. He will end things. He will carry out his word. His promises will be fulfilled. So will his judgment. And no one's going to stop him. He's the one that we're coming to learn in this book, right? He's the one that we're going to worship. You excited about that yet? God's going to be doing great things in our midst. Next week, the, the, we called next week face-to-face -face with Jesus. And I think John, poor guy in his 90s, must have hang on to an angina or something. <laughs> I'm not going to make Imagine standing before the Lord in all of his glory on the Lord's day with a loud voice and a trumpet. And the Lord begins by saying what he said in verse 8, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. Write this in a book, John. Write it to these churches. Here's what I am. Here, tell them what you've seen. And then he gets to describe Jesus. It's going to be amazing. And then we'll spend seven weeks in chapter 2 and 3 and look at what the Lord wants to say to the church. That's you and I. What can we pick up from all of these lessons? Uh, I just finished chapter uh, 3 today. I am so excited. If you want to say six hours, we can do the whole thing right now. I'm that excited. But I'll probably drop. Okay, let's pray, shall we? Father, we're so excited to just begin this journey through this book. I know that some of us are excited to move a little quicker. I pray that we can just take in all that you give us so we don't miss a thing. And as we tonight just even begin to see that, Lord, the one that we're coming to hear from, the one that loves us, who has sent his grace to us, the one that wants us to have peace with him and filled with his spirit, that we're going to learn about Jesus, the, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth, the one who so loved us that he, he came and shed his blood so he could forgive our sins, who is going to bring us into his kingdom as, as priests and servants for his glory, and that he's coming. He's coming again. He's coming to deliver. He's coming to judge. He's the first and the last. He's God Almighty. Oh, Lord, come. So good that we're serving a God that can't be beat. There's, there's no one like, no one that is equated to him. Far beyond what we can even imagine, you are. And God, that we would find ourselves with that kind of awe constantly, as John will have. Where we fall at your feet and just are amazed at what we've seen. Just overwhelmed by just the knowledge of who you are so confident in your power that we'll go out and serve you in a world that wants nothing to do with you knowing that you'll do the work by your grace 
that tonight we can't earn your love, but you just give it to us. You love us as much when we're failing as when we're succeeding. When we've done well and not so well, your love never changes. Just the opportunity to express that love and blessing as we look to you. So Father, may you excite our hearts for what comes next. May we hear and may we approach you and, and see you as John does. May we be overwhelmed with an amazement of your person as we find ourselves, Lord, at this last book, thinking about our God and the work he's come to do. I can tell you this for sure. If you are here tonight and don't know him, and you think somehow he won't love you, or maybe what you've done is too much, or you don't see a way back, or you wonder if you'll be acceptable to him, all you have to do is come. Grace is freely given. If you could earn it, it wouldn't be grace. It'd be a reward. It'd be a debt payment. But you owe God your life. He doesn't owe you a thing, and yet he gives you so much. So if you think for one minute tonight, God won't take me, think again. Arms are open. His, his eyes are scanning the fields. And the minute you come to him, he'll come running to you and take you up in his arms and bless to forgive your sins, to wash you clean, to make you his own, and to promise you a future that's just going to be unbelievable. Come and, and say, look, I want to give Jesus my life. I want to be saved. I want him to forgive my sins, even as he said he would do. I want to belong to him. And God will answer that prayer. And tonight, you'll be his. And he's been waiting for such a long time to bless your life. So you come. Before you go home, come and re resolve that issue between you and the Lord. Well, thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing and rating our podcast. You can visit us on the web at MorningstarCC.org and on our YouTube channel at MorningstarCC. Again, that's at MorningstarCC. If you'd like to support this podcast, please look us up at Patreon.com slash MorningstarCC. Again, that's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Morningstar CC.